Let us pray. Father, we are here today to bless your name and to give you praise. We know that without you we are nothing, that we are lost like a ship at sea without a rudder. Direct us according to your sovereign will for our lives. Grant us wisdom as we strive to walk in your ways. Give us courage to proclaim the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us the heart of a servant and the hunger for your holy word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today's message is uh, going to be topical in nature. Uh, in preparation, I considered <coughs> several topics that are of vital importance to me, such as evangelism, or maybe then uh, evangelism, and then of course, you know it, evangelism. However, in speaking with uh, Eric Crudup uh, some weeks ago, he suggested it would be nice to hear teaching on the verse in Psalms 46 that states, be still and know that I am God. So today's topic is about abiding and about being still. So let's open our Bibles and let's, uh, we're going to read all of Psalm 46 together. Psalm 46. And it reads, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. So in looking at this psalm, we see three things. In verses 1 through 3, we see the permanence of divine refuge. The depth of God's concern as the refuge and strength of Israel is stressed by the description of him being very present or always available, if you will, in times of trouble. The permanence and inviability of God is, as Israel's help is certain. Nothing can happen. Fear is non-existent, even the face of the earth giving way, or mountains being moved into the heart of the sea, or mountains trembling. Sounds like an earthquake, doesn't it? You know, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, we have earthquakes there, so I can attest to how scary an earthquake could be. 
fact, uh, uh, back in 1989, I was driving home from work and came to a stoplight in the road and was just sitting there and felt like I had, was getting four flat tires all at the same time. I'm like, whoa, what's wrong with my truck? Who gets four flat tires? All th- who gets four flat tires sitting still <laughs> at a red light? And then I looked around and I, and I saw the, 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 the light standards doing like this. And then I saw other cars doing like this, the same thing that my truck was doing. I mean, this was a big earthquake. And I, I don't know if you remember that one or read about it or heard about it. Uh, it was right at the start of the World Series. People were in Candlestick Park. The, everybody thought that thing was going to fall down. The Bay Bridge broke in, 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 a, in a section and, and fell through. The whole freeway in Oakland f- collapsed. A lot of people died. It was a scary thing. And I, and I remember to this day how, how afraid that made me. Right? In verses 4 to 7, we see the accessibility of divine refuge. And the imagery of this section turns to the hope of intimate accessibility to God's presence in the future when the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem, the city of God. When he establishes his throne in Zion and ultimately remakes all creation in purity and rest in him. Let's look together at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. If you could turn there with me. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. So you can't hear the pages turn on the phone, huh? They should make an app for that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and he will be his peop- they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. There will be, there be, mourning, there will be no mourning, no, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You know, reading this, I, I think, you know, our, our life can but become a room filled with darkness. Filled with fear, filled with trouble. But all we have to do is be still. And know that, be still and just wait for God. I think being still and waiting are kind of the same thing, right? And wait for the light that he's going to bring into that darkness. Where there's no more tears, no more trouble, and only joy. Then in verses 8 through 11, we see the comfort of divine, divine refuge. Here the psalmist closed the psalm with words of encouragement. Behold the works of the Lord. 
In these closing words of comfort, God also included a challenge to be still. Is, is it challenging for anybody here to be still? It is for me. Or literally, to cease striving. That's what that means. To be still means to cease striving. And know that he is God. Here the verb know signifies experiential knowledge. The believer is commanded to cease worrying when faced with problems, persecution, circumstances. It said the command is to remember that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And we have this confidence in God even though we know that guess what? Trouble is coming. John says I look like a schoolmaster when I do this. You know, there's some people, and, and, and we've seen these people in our lives, they seem to live charm lives, right? Trouble rarely comes their way. And when it does come, they seem to have the ability to just let it pass by quite easily. That's not me. But one thing that every human being needs to be aware of is that real trouble will come one day. There's no way that anyone living in the world today, there's just no way, a troublesome world in troublesome times can avoid trouble. Some of you here today may be going through times of stress and difficulty. The psalm says that this should be a blessing to you. Trouble, a blessing? And when this trouble comes, you learn to overcome it by faith in God, who is your refuge and your strength. This reminds me of Job. You can't, when you think of trouble, you just can't help but think of Job, right? Has anybody read Job recently? Uh, maybe you ought to, uh, sometime soon. Now, in the beginning, you might get bogged down a little bit uh, with uh, Job's friends, with their philosophies and, and their ways of trying to comfort him. But you start by reading the beginning of the story, and, and, and it's fascinating. Job was a remarkable man. He was a success. He had a large family, large everything. I mean, you name it, he had it. And, you know, now Satan was a bit worried about him. And he wondered if he could knock him square in the chops, right? So he had a word with God about Job. And God gave him permission to do certain things. He gave Satan permission to do certain things. And the story of Job is vital in understanding <clears throat> that there is trouble and that there is a Satan. There's evil in this world. Things do happen, but they always happen, guess what, under the providence of God. In other words, God never allows anything to happen to his children that will not result and his good purposes being carried out and brought to fruition. Now think of it. Satan was given permission by God to do certain things in order that Satan might be an instrument of blessing. 
And funny enough, under God's overwhelming grace in Job's life, that's, that's what happened. He took everything, all his sons, all his daughters, all his lands, all his camels, all his donkeys, all his oxen. Then in the end, he even took his health. And we now see uh, Job sitting on the trash heap outside the city, scratching himself with a shard. Because he had developed this chronic disease, <clears throat> and it was about to drive him out of his mind. Trouble does come. But now listen to this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So let's get applicational here, okay? And let's look at some things we can do when trouble comes. First, realize that when trouble comes, God is a refuge for his people. Secondly, realize, according to verse 5, that God is president or resident among his people. Thirdly, realize that according to verse 4, God sends a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the habitation of the Most High. It's in the understanding of these two things that equip believers to cope with the trouble that either will come or has come or is still here. So then what do we mean by saying God is a refuge for his people? What does that mean? Well, it suggests to us this idea of something like the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. And you can read about them in the book, in, uh, the book of Numbers, where God gave instructions for the building of his ideal nation in Israel and insisted that they should have certain cities dotted around the land that were cities of refuge. And you see, in those days, they had what's called pre-summary justice. They worked on the principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If someone touches your eye, better look out. If anybody pulls their tooth, they better watch out. I'd hate to be a dentist back in those days. <laughs> be a real bummer. But in the cities of refuge, there was a touch of mercy, though. If a man kills somebody by accident, he could flee to a city of refuge. For instance, let's say you're working <clears throat> and the head of your axe flies off and it hits someone between the eyes and kills them. The thing to do immediately was to move as quickly as you could for the city of refuge. And if you could get there, open the door, drag yourself in, and get them to slam the city gates behind you because you're safe. This is the picture that we have of God being a refuge who is continually available for his people. In other words, it might seem sometimes that the flood and the earthquake and the storm are coming after you and that you're certain that you're going to be totally engulfed. Ever feel like this? Does life ever just feel like that to, to folks here? Like, oh, man, it's just, when's it going to stop? 
But don't try to argue with the flood. Don't try to argue with the storm. You know, to some of your uh, disdain maybe in here, there's, there's no gift of complaining. <laughs> and there's no gift of grumbling. These are not gifts of the Spirit. So don't exercise those. Don't try to rationalize when everything is shaking like an earthquake. Don't try to deal with the power of Satan. And don't try to cope with trouble by yourself. Admit when you're beaten and head for the city of refuge. When trouble comes, the first thing you must realize is that God is continually available. This is an Old Testament passage, but the New Testament amplifies it even further. The Lord Jesus himself said that we must come to him, all of us who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. So the simple message as what to do in time of trouble is this. Admit that God is your refuge. And you can't cope. Christ is the one who opens his arms and says, come to me with all your burdens. Secondly, we must realize that God our refuge is not only continually available, but he is thoroughly adequate. He is our strength. There would be no good in saying that God is our refuge if, if God was not strong. Sometimes we just need to stick our necks out there and say there is no way trouble can come into a person's life, however overwhelming it might be, there's no way it can come and be greater than the strength of God to enable you to survive it. There's no trouble that can come your way outside of the permissive will of God. Satan can throw all the forces of hell at you, but God is your strength. The risen Lord is adequate. And that's why I always tell folks, man, live on the resurrection side of that cross. If you are born again, there is no other way that you can be finally and ultimately defeated. Right, Nate? Now, I know that faith is sometimes sticking your neck out and saying this, but I believe that is exactly what scriptures teach. We must realize that God is our refuge not only continually available and thoroughly adequate, but thoroughly readily accessible as well. Look back at verse 1. We're jumping all over the place here. I don't go in order. <laughs> not only is God our refuge and our strength, God is a very present help in trouble. You see that there? In other words, as far as the psalmist was concerned, he knew he didn't have to reach further than the tips of his fingers to be able to say and lay hold of the hand of God. As far as the New Testament saying is concerned, as you all, we don't even have to reach that far. You see, we believe that God who loves us sent Christ to die for us, raised him up, and put him into our life and is alive in us. 
You can't get any more present than that, can you? Christ in you. Isn't this the lovely message of what to do in trouble? Recognize that God is my refuge and turn to him. You know, when it comes to trouble, it's, 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 it's like the sun. We're out here in this Arizona sun, just coming right around the corner, right? For some people, it can harden them like clay. For others, it can soften them like wax. I guess it all depends on what you believe or don't believe as to how you're going to respond to the heat of the furnace when it comes, on, uh, comes upon you. I mean, how can you say God is your refuge if you pick and choose what to believe about his word? You can't. About his promises. About being transformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then we also have to realize that God is present or resident among his people. Verse 4, let's go to verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now the term the city of God, as far as the psalmist was concerned, was a picture that he loved to use of Mount Zion. And this is the place where the temple was going to be. Mount Zion was where the tabernacle of the Most High was going to be. Because God is resident among his people, we should then understand that the church, which is composed of people born again of the Spirit of God, baptized in the body of Christ, is the city of God, and God is resident in our midst. What do you do in trouble? First, you recognize and you realize that God is your own refuge. Secondly, you reckon that God is very much alive in the fellowship of his people, in the fellowship in the fellowship of his people, there is support. In the fellowship of people, there is concern and compassion. Not because they're special people. Because they're not. They're like everybody else. But because God is resident in those people. Christ in us. God is alive through the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised to send. What do we do in time of trouble? We run to God as our refuge. We come to Christ as our Savior who opens his arms and he says, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden. We proclaim with our lips of clay. What a joy. The Lord is actually resident in me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Man, this old body of mine, this old mine is, this old house of mine, it's cracking at the foundation. I was walking like this the other day. Under pressure, the floods are coming. The earthquake is coming. The storm is coming. But the glorious thing about this, God is resident within me. In the latter part of verse 4, it says, the holy habitation of the Most High. He is the Most High. In other words, he is the one seated on the throne above all thrones. As the one who's ordering the universe. Therefore, he's a God of power and a God of purpose. 
What an exciting thing to be a Christian. What an exciting thing to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you're immune from trouble. And it doesn't mean that you won't have problems. It may mean that you have more problems. But the exciting thing about this is in the midst of trouble, you know what it is to have God alive and alert within you. Who is seated on the throne of the Most High. He's a God of overflowing grace and overruling serenity. And he is therefore a God of power and a God of purpose alive within you. If you really believe that, if you really believe that, when trouble comes, your attitude toward trouble is going to be different. You're going to realize that, God, that the God who is resident in your life is a God of power and a God of purpose. Now let's go to verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You know, sometimes I feel like Jacob and I feel like I have a lot in common. The only thing is we haven't quite finished up the same way yet. But I hope I'll catch up with him. Jacob was a crook. Jacob was twisted. Jacob was so unbelievably bad inside. But God stuck with him. And worked with him over the years. He dealt with Jacob. He closed in on Jacob. And Jacob reaped the benefits of his own stupidity because God stuck with him. And he stuck with him until the end. One glad day, Jacob says, I quit, God. I'm the gay biz, I'm kind of reading into it a little bit. But I feel I had to do that. I had, I had to just surrender and say, God, I quit. I quit being your enemy. I quit, you know, being this person you don't want me to be. And God responded by changing Jacob into Israel. He took one who was twisted and warped and mean and changed him into a prince of God. The most beautiful thing is we see that God is a God of unbelievable patience. Doesn't that give you joy knowing that? Now put these three things together. He's the most high. That means he's a God of purpose. He is the Lord of mighty armies. That means he's the God of power. He is the God of Jacob. That means to me he is a God of patience. Now, again, I know I'm jumping around here a bit, but let's go back to verse 4 again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. 
It's interesting here that he's talking about a river that makes glad to see God, but in the beginning of the psalm, it starts with trouble. Of course, the two can be fitted together uh, quite nicely when you begin to comprehend that God is the one who sends a river of blessing to his people. If you want to check on uh, this, uh, do a study of Ezekiel 47 and of John 7, 37 through 39. And if you look into these passages, you see that the river of God that flows in the city of God is a fabulous picture of the activity of the Spirit of God. Now, to be clear on this, the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's no question about it. The picture of the river, according to the interpretation of the New Testament, is a picture of the activity of the Spirit of God. And, and, and actually, uh, John attests to that in verse 39. So if you're in trouble today, I want to say this to you. There is a glorious river. There's nothing less than the flow of the Spirit of God straight from the throne of God. And this river brings refreshment wherever it flows, because it is a river that makes glad the people of God. Now you ask, how does that work? How does he do that? Well, the activity of the Spirit of God through the Word of God makes glad the people of God when they're going through trouble. Because God will always be talking with your spirit and reminding you that you're a child of God. He will always be reminding you that you are loved by God. He will always be speaking to you through the word of God and applying the truth of God to your heart. That's how the river of God makes glad the city of God. I want to conclude with the, with the principle of abiding in Christ. Earlier, Connie read John 15, 1 through 11. There we heard Jesus speaking of abiding in him and he in us. And, I, and I'd like for us to read that together one more time. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For him apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my 
Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. When trouble comes, we remember that we are in Christ and he is in us. This is known as being in union with Christ. What does that mean? You know, there's been some misunderstanding. This is maybe perhaps this union in Christ too mystical to understand. Or perhaps maybe it's an experience that, that can't be quantified. But Jesus makes this a reality that is to be understood in several ways. First, union with Christ is dependent on his grace. Yes, we are to be actively and personally united to Christ by faith, but understand that faith is rooted in the activity of God and not the activity of man. Faith is the gift of God. The next question is, who's the vine dresser? It's the Father, whose scripture tells us grafts us into Christ. It is Christ by his word who has cleansed us to make fit union with himself. So all is sovereign, all is grace. Furthermore, union with Christ means being obedient to him. Now, this obedience is the fruit of the Spirit displayed in us as an outward expression of the fact of our union with Christ. It's a response to the teaching of the Word of Christ. In Colossians, Paul, Paul tells us to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. The Word of Christ fills our minds and our hearts and directs our wills to be transformed into the image of Christ. What do we do when trouble comes? We go to the Word of God, our Bibles. We spend our time reading in His Word, meditating on His Word, abiding in Christ through His Word. To abide also means spending time in prayer, communing with God as the Holy Spirit directs us. In this way, we will never misapply the meaning of verse 7 concerning whatever we ask. Finally, abiding in Christ means to rest our lives on the love of Christ. It was Christ who so loved, loved us that he laid down his life for us. This was proved on the cross. And my friends, we, we can never, never, ever afford, be able to afford to drift away from the cross and its meaning. We must meditate on the cross of Christ. And the Holy Spirit will pour out the love of God into our hearts. So, when we do these things, I would encourage all of you here today to be still and know that he is God. Let us pray. Lord God, we stand here today proclaiming that you are a refuge, that you are our strength, 
that you are sovereign over our lives, that you will bring about your perfect will for us. Thank you for being patient with us, for putting up with our disobedience, our unbelief, our giving into fear due to trouble in our life. Help us to remember your promises. Help us to remember the work of the cross. Help us to obey you in all things as we seek to surrender to you fully. I pray that our lives bring you praise and that all we say and do glorifies you. Thank you, Father, that we can say with confidence that it is well with our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.